I think that inspired by Jane Austen, just enjoying literature, being able to enjoy it and not think about the vocabulary and you know all, all of these little pieces that benefit our kids' education and are great, but just teaching them to enjoy, I think is is just, that's the goal. Welcome to the Catholic Homeschool Podcast. I'm so glad to have you here today. My name is Paula Siskanik, your host. And today's guest is Haley Stewart. And we're going to be talking about Jane Austen and many other things in terms of virtues, teaching our children the moral compass, so to speak, and using literature as that way to do that, to give the examples to our children. So, Without further ado, hello, Haley. How are you? Hello. It's a crazy time because we're right in the middle of the move. So I'm okay. I'm okay. But it's it's a stressful season. It is. It is. I can't imagine. You know, I think, uh, as you said, we'll get into that. You have a new job. You're going to have to move to a whole new state. So we'll get into all of that because, you know, that's an important, that's like life, you know, in the middle of all this. And and boy, I love to talk about that, especially in this homeschooling. You know, we could set plans, but life happens first. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Before we begin, let me get this, the official bio read. And so people who don't know Haley, Let me introduce you to Haley Stewart as the managing editor now of Word on Fire Spark. She is the author of Jane Austen's Genius Guide to Life. She is also the author of the book, The Grace of Enough, and The Delightful Stories of the Sisters, Serafina Mysteries, which is a series for young readers. She also co-hosts a podcast called Fountains of Carrots, and she is married to a whiskey distiller, and they have four children. Thank you so much, Haley, for joining us today. You know, I'd love to, before we get turned on the podcast here, we were talking a little bit about how uh, in our community, we have the Catholic homeschool community, we just started this amazing vibrant group with teens on writing. It's called Catholic Author Teen Group. And I wanted to talk a little bit about first your journey. You know, what was it like teenage, Haley? Were you interested in writing? Because I mean, you're prolific now. You're going to be managing children and young adult uh, books. What was your journey? Yeah, I was a reader as a teen, but I wasn't a writer yet. Um, so I, I didn't hate writing, but I never was the teenager carrying around my notebook, writing down my observations. You know, I wasn't keeping a journal. Um, so it really wasn't until after college that I really started writing for pleasure. So I, I was a good writer in college, but it wasn't a passion. And it really wasn't until our first child was born that I wanted to write about the experience. It was just kind of opened the floodgates of creativity for me. And I found, I discovered writing then. And um, so, so right, as a teen, I didn't even know I would go in that direction. I had no idea, but I knew that I loved literature. Yeah. So were you that kind of, so like I have a picture of my daughter who was an avid reader who was vacuuming 
and reading at the same time. So were you like that kind? Would you say a little that? bit like that? Yeah. <laughs> so foundationally, did it set the stage for the kind of writing you would want to do or your styles? How did that, in terms of being a voracious reader, help? Sure. So I, I've primarily written nonfiction, which is not my favorite thing to read. So I've always been a fiction reader, but for a long time, I was a nonfiction writer and then just recently over the past couple of years started writing fiction. And I can definitely tell my fiction writing voice feels very inspired by a lot of my favorite authors, um, especially children's book authors. And so, yeah, that's been really fun to discover. So I think that the lesson there is that you don't have to have always loved writing to end up a writer, end up a good writer. It can be something that you discover over time. And, but with a foundation of really good reading that I think that's, that's just the foundation of everything. Yeah, exactly. And so that brings to light that whole idea, which is really what we'd like to dive into is, you know, choosing good literature, good books. But before we dive into that, because I think this is so important in terms of people understanding and where your heart is and what drew you, you are a convert to the faith. How how did you get to be a Catholic? (laughs) Sure. Well, that had something to do with books as well. So my husband and I were, my, my husband's father is a Southern Baptist minister. I grew up in a devout Protestant home. And when we were in college, we were in a great books program. Mm -hmm. And so we were reading everything from Plato all the way up to 20th century novels. And during that journey, we're reading the early church fathers for the first time. And that was very surprising to us what the early church fathers were saying because it sounded very very catholic and it started to make us very nervous and so we you know read the early church fathers all the way through to the reformers and we thought oh, the reformers are going to make this all make sense to us but that was not the case and so it was everything from saint ignatius of antioch all the way up to evil and wa and flannery o'connor you know discovering the faith through fiction through these stories I think was just as powerful as reading the early church fathers because something about the power of that story, it just, a novel can do something that an essay can't do. That's why it's, you know, that's why it's a novel. It's kind of like a, you can't explain a poem and have it still be a poem. So something about the, these novels that we read by Catholic authors, just something clicked, something about grace and something about the faith and, and the sacraments and all of these things just clicked for us. So we were very drawn to the faith. And then after our first child was born, we, that was what pushed us across the Tiber because we had to get him baptized. So we had to sign up for RCIA. (laughs) That's so great. I love that. And it's the grace, you know, the grace of children, that blessing, you know, is that little mm, tug over, as you say, crossing the the Tiber. Well, you know, our, our dear Lord did teach in parables, story. It is, it is you know, his story central to all of that. I love that, how that worked its way into your hearts and brought you home to the church. Let's dive a little bit into that. You know, the power of literature, the power of story. Um, and how does that really work in terms of, because story has to work in our imagination. And, and let's talk about imagination, story, and morality. Mm-hmm. Well, stories are just how we learn. You, know, you mentioned parables, that this is how Jesus taught the disciples, that God knows that our 
our hearts and minds are wired for story. That's just simply how we learn as human beings. And so in order to understand things, especially things that are difficult, things that are complicated and nuanced, we have to have a story. We have to have a narrative to understand those things. And I think when we get into concepts like virtue and morality, that's that's where novels shine is because we have these characters who have these conundrums and we've got to walk with them to see, are they doing the right thing? Are, are they a good person? Is, it, is what they're choosing making them better? Or is it making them worse? How do we become a good person? What is that what is that journey like? If if I don't have those virtues, is it possible to acquire them? What does that look like? So all of these questions are things that good literature wrestles with and gives us models for understanding. Yeah. So when you say good literature, what do you mean? Because, you know, um, one of those things, we can't assume that we've all had a great books education. You know, I myself was a chemical engineer. So, you know, I got no literature <laughs> in my formation. I did have parents who were avid readers, and that's what exposed me to beautiful. But how do you, what's good literature, Haley? <laughs> how do we find right. that? Well, I think as Catholics, we look at two different things. One of them is the quality of the art, the artistic quality of the text. And then from there, we also look at does this work of art point us towards the transcendentals, point us towards what's true and good and beautiful. And for a Catholic, that's what great literature is. And so I think, you know, there are books out there that are stylistically beautiful, but maybe don't point us towards the true and the good and the beautiful. But I think great literature is is what does both. So, so this, this is high art, you know, it's really beautiful. It doesn't mean it has to be somber. Jane Austen, for instance, she's hilarious. She's very funny. But it's it's such high quality that as you develop, you develop a taste for it. It's it's not something that it might not be something that you're um, really good at recognizing right away until you've kind of delved into it for a while, and then you can recognize it. Um, I've been I've been putting together a book list of books that spark the imagination, and it's been so interesting as I've been gathering different suggestions and going to the library and looking at books, I can open a book and in three pages, no, nope, this doesn't belong here, you know, or hmm, this, this has, this has potential. I'm going to finish this book. Maybe this is going to go on the book list, but I think it's something that you have to develop over time. And if you don't feel like you have it yet, it doesn't mean it's game over for you at all. My dad didn't start really reading literature until his late forties. And he's very well read now. You know, he just dived in and he loves it. And so it, there's never, it's never too late. No, no, absolutely never too late. And also, I just want to, you know, the confidence for our homeschool parents, you don't have to be everything in that sense, too, knowing that there are sources to be able, trusted sources to be able to pick people that you, you know, will be looking forward to that list, by the way, Haley. <laughs> but the thing is, I remember, you know, my family business uh, for years, I got to review books. And you're right. I think it's just with practice as well, you know, as practicing your faith, you start to have a discerning eye towards these things. You know, you immediately, especially, I really think the, and I don't know if you've experienced this too, authors who write for middle grade, I think are very talented. That's a really hard age to write for, to, to have truths expressed, but the language and maturity level right at that, those teen years, have you found that too? 
Yeah. I think that's a really tricky age. Um, and it's, it's, it's a tall order. So it's no wonder that there's not tons of books for that age group that are, you know, classics. Um, because it, it is tough. You can't dive into some of the themes that you could dive into with the novel for grownups, but you, it can't, it still needs nuance. You know, there, there are kids who have, they're at the stage where they're going to recognize if it's just a message that's hitting them over the head. They don't want that. You know, it's, it's trying to, to get that middle. Yeah. That's very, it's a tricky, tricky age. It is a tricky age. And, and I know that again, you also have children and I've had, I found children that were, you know, excelled in reading, you know, and that's another big thing. You have kids who come to reading early and those who don't, and yet, you know, it evens out at the end. So, <laughs> but when I had a, a daughter who was an avid reader, it was, she just didn't have the life experience. You know, what does that have to do with how you read a book? You know, maturity, you know, should we be reading on a Karenina, you know, even though you can at, you know, <laughs> 10 years old. <laughs> I think that there are a lot of books that it's wonderful to read them just for the plot, maybe as a young reader, as long as you're going to come back to them. So for instance, I read Kristen Lovren's daughter as like a 12 year old. I don't know if that was a good idea or not, but you know, I got the plot and I was kind of like, okay, well, ho-hum. And right. then 15 years later, reread it and it completely blew my mind. It was one of my top five favorite novels. I read it almost every year, but I needed to come back to it. So I think that's another thing too. I think it's good to um, not narrow our our kids reading choices so much that they don't get it. They can't just pick up a book off the shelf and say, well, I want to read Anna Karenina. You know, I think it's, it's okay to let them explore really good literature, um, you know, within reason for age appropriateness, yeah, but yes. <laughs> then but encouraging them that, Oh, this is a book you're going to want to come back to you. Like you, you, you're, you know what happened now. So now when you come back to it in a few years, you're mm -hmm. going to see all the things you didn't see before. Yeah. So life experience. I love how you had said that too. You know, it's this idea of also reading for fun, for the fun of it. So you're not going to necessarily say now do a book report and a PowerPoint presentation and give us all the themes in that book. <laughs> right. Right. I am very anti-book report. <laughs> yeah. I, I just. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Taking notes while you're reading, unless it's fun for you, unless it's fun for you, don't ruin the pleasure of being completely engrossed in the book without having to think, oh, what am I going to say in my book report? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So now let's get full fast forward to Jane Austen, somebody we both love. And I know uh, you just have your new book. So please tell us about the book. What prompted you to do that? Because it's really tying the two things together. Sure. So the book's called Jane Austen's Genius Guide to Life on Love, Friendship, and becoming the person God created you to be. So Jane Austen, she's one of my favorite, favorite authors. I love all her novels. And I was exposed to her as a, as a girl, just um, through the film adaptation, started reading the novels. And like, like with um, Kristen Lovren's daughter, loved the plots, loved the characters, loved the humor, but didn't get all of it. And then returned to the novels in college and actually read them as part of a philosophy class, read all the novels um, with a philosophy professor. So we were looking at Austin as a moral philosopher. You know, what is her moral philosophy? What is she saying about virtue and really what makes someone a good person and whether 
we can become good people. And so that's what I wanted to dive into, partly because um, while Austin is so good at writing romance, she's also more than that. I think sometimes she gets dismissed as a novelist for the ladies because she's got swoony heroes, you know, and that's maybe partly the fault of some of the film adaptations, but I think it does her a disservice because there's so much more there as well. And so I wanted to dive into all of that. Yeah, it's hard in um, film, and I'm glad you brought that up because so much of her stories are really, you know, it's what's going on in her head. Okay, so even though, you know, how do you translate that without it just being like, you know, over voice voiceovers? (laughs) Right. And some of them, some of the novels have never had a good film adaptation. For instance, Mansfield Park. Yes. So much the novel is happening in Fanny Price's mind that you either have to change your character, which ruins the book. Or you 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 just you just can't do it. There's no good ones, um, and I don't know that there ever will be because it just wouldn't translate the way that Pride and Prejudice or something like that translates well into a film. But yes, that's true. It, it's just you're you're going to be missing some things. Yeah. So when we talk about the virtues and and you know what do you mean? Can you give me some examples uh, in particular? Sure. Um, I think that one of the things that I loved about writing this book is it gave me the opportunity to really learn to understand some of the virtues that I didn't have a good grasp on before. So a virtue like prudence, you know, that, that word is used different ways in, in contemporary language. We might use that word differently than um, a philosopher is using it to talk about the virtue of prudence. And I discovered I didn't really know what that meant exactly. What does it mean to be prudent? And so diving in and understanding through Jane Austen's um, Northanger Abbey, was we watch Catherine Moreland, who's a young teenager, go from her her folly, her youthful folly, to starting starting to develop this virtue of prudence and seeing other characters who have maybe cultivated this virtue more that she's looking up to. And so that this virtue is the this virtue of practical wisdom where we can see clearly what reality is and know how to act rightly based on what's true in a given situation. So that's that's the tricky part, right? Is is in each situation we have to discern again, well what is the right thing to do here given the circumstances. And so that's what Catherine doesn't understand how to do and she's misreading things and she's acting in ways that um, don't at all fit out fit what she wants to do and wants she has good intentions, but she just doesn't have the prudence to discern what she needs to. And that's something that takes this maturity that we see her start to develop. And so it was really fun diving into these ideas and learning to understand these virtues that I only I could use them in a sentence, but to really have a deep understanding of them, I had to spend a lot of time with Austin and then with um different philosophers like um, Joseph Pieper to really understand what these meant and and how to try to develop them. So Haley, how would you recommend, let's say, if that is something, because one of the things when I I coach homeschooling families and part of our discussions in our community has to talk about that, you know, being able to teach, you you can come up with a laundry list, as you say, of the virtues, but what 
what are some practical ways that we do this? Is it about our first, you know, we get educated ourselves and then we pass this on to our children or are we using literature as that vehicle? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, of course, the way that we model virtue for our children is probably going to be the most important thing in their lives, um, which is a little scary. But I think that literature helps us have these shared narratives to discuss these ideas. And so, for instance, um, the other day, my 13-year-old son he just wanted to talk about Mr. Collins for some reason for Pride and Prejudice. He was like, you know, I don't, I don't think he's, I don't think he has bad intentions. I, I don't know if I, I wouldn't call him a villain, but what is, what would you say is his flaw? You know, what's his deal? So we we talked about that and bounced ideas around. You know, what makes Mr. Collins so insufferable and yet not not a terrible villain? Not, um, and so just talking about those different things, and you have conversations about. Um, you know, someone can be well-intentioned and still hurt other people or frustrate other people. And, and what does that mean? What do our, how do our intentions play in? And then that's not the only thing that matters though, how we, how we behave, no matter how well-intentioned matters too. And so having those conversations, it gives us a language to talk about these things. I remember um, when I was probably 12 and my older brother was 17 or 18, we were watching Emma, the Gwyneth Paltrow version. And there's a little um, minute of dialogue that's not in the books, but is consistent with the story where um, the main character has just insulted a, a kind of irritating spinster of the community. Um, and the hero, Mr. Knightley, notices this and is distressed that she has humiliated this woman. And so he invites the spinster, he says, you know, would you do me the honor of picking strawberries with me to, to remove her from this humiliating circumstance? And um, my older brother said, gosh, Mr. Knightley always knows the right thing to do. You know, it's not like he wanted to go strawberry picking with this old lady, but he knew this was not right. I can step in and make things improve the circumstances for this woman. It's the right thing to do. So I'm going to do it. And just having that exemplar to see that that perfect example of prudence, knowing here's the right thing to do in this situation, um, and then being able to do it, that just helps form our, our imaginations of how we ought to behave um, in a way that just talking about prudence and explaining what it is could never do. Yeah, so it's not so much like we have to learn these virtues through hard knocks <laughs> ourselves. <laughs> we can experience them. I, I love how you just gave that story about you and your son, I mean, you had a shared language. Isn't that what stories do in a family? They kind of become like family members. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that is such an important piece of developing your family culture and developing those relationships, being able to make references to stuff you've read together. It's like an inside joke that makes you feel like part of the family. And I think that's really, really crucial in family life. Yeah, I know. I know so much of it came from the years that we did read alouds. And one of the things people tend to do, especially as they get to the middle school years and teen years, is they're like, well, they're reading on their own. We don't read alouds for little kids. Mm -hmm. You know, I love the scene how even just in Brideshead Revisited, the mother is reading the Father Brown, you know, to adults. Yeah, Yeah, I love that. I feel like that's something... um, 
that as culturally, we've kind of lost that as a pastime because it's easier to put on a movie, which I, I understand. I'm tired in the evening. Yes. I get it. We yes, do that all I the do. Time. I do. And sometimes rarely is the movie better than the book. I mean, I know we just started, we did the around the year and 80 days, new PBS mm-hmm. series, you know, and, and all creatures great and small, you know, but love all you know, creatures oh great. My gosh. <laughs> so, so sometimes it can open the door. I think to that as well. And like you said, with Jane Austen, so often it's many of our young men feel intimidated that it's just a girly story. (laughs) I think think the way um, to, to help male readers dive in, I think what's helpful is emphasizing Austen's humor that, you know, you're going to come upon these characters that just seem wacky and it's because they are, and you're supposed to laugh, you know, get ready to laugh and enjoy yourself. Um, Because I think that sometimes she's presented as kind of like a somber, serious author. And she's simply not, I mean, there's serious moments, there's serious themes, but it's, it's comical. I mean, it's so funny. And I think that setting, setting readers up for that reality, I think makes it a little bit less intimidating. Yeah, I think, you know, I have my teenage boys do Emma, you know, is that first introduction because Emma is, is really, <laughs> she, and in many ways, I think she's so, she's so uh, um, relatable she to is. that age. <laughs> Absolutely. She is to my shame. She's the heroine that I, yeah. um, I, I most identify with. Same here, same here, Haley. She really is so much so that it's funny. Our fa- our family dog was named Emma, which is really yeah, <laughs> paying homage to that. So great. Um, I want before we we leave, and these are wonderful, precious gems that we pass on to our families that are homeschooling because they're you know we both have this love of literature. I myself, as I said. Uh, you know, I was went into a scientific background and it was devoid of any kind of literature. So I was New York City kid. I would read those books and I'd get like the study guides because I had nobody to discuss it with. Is there is there going to be um, any guides, any help, anything you have for parents? That I noticed with the book, there is a guide. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I there's a couple of resources in the back of the book. I have little summaries and character sketches for each novel, just so if it's been a while since you read Austin, or maybe you haven't read Austin, or you haven't read all of them, um, you don't feel like you can't read the book. You know, it's it's going to be there to, to fill you in. And then I've also created a resource that you can download for free from Ave Maria Press's website called A Year with Jane Austen. And it's kind of just set up to help you read Austin's six novels. So there's discussion questions and just ideas for, for reading. So that would be a great resource if you're thinking about reading with your kids or doing a little Jane Austen book club um, that it's all, it's all ready to go for you. And so again, it's just about the springboard of the really important conversations we should be having with our children. So uh, you have a new move. You have a new job. Can you tell me a little bit about your new job? I'm really excited for you. (laughs) I am so excited too. So I'm loving it. At the end of January, I started um, working as the managing editor of Word on Fire Spark, which is Word on Fire Publishing's new imprint for young readers. So I am commissioning books for children, working with authors and illustrators. It is absolute dream job. Just so fun. So exciting. So diving into that 
And then we're also moving across the country because my husband got offered a new job and we're moving closer to grandparents. So there's a lot of a lot of changes for the Stewart household this yes. year. Yes. So tell us. So one of the things, and again, I had mentioned it, the elephant in the room is this, you know, Haley, you did homeschool your children and there was a big change this past year. Want to tell us a little bit about that too in that journey? Yeah, absolutely. So we homeschooled from day one, all of the kids. And then we're just noticing that our oldest, who's 13 this year, just needed a change. Um, so we were just seeing some things with his education and just dynamics that he, he just needs something different, a different environment. And we were so lucky to have an incredible Catholic classical school right up the road with Dominican sisters. And it's just been wonderful. So we put him in school, but we're homeschooling our daughters. And my husband had actually gone back to part-time because I was writing full-time so that he could do a lot of the homeschooling. And then I'd supplement a little bit. And then we just thought that it was time for the girls to also go to this classical school, partly because we'd been so happy with how our son was thriving there, but also partly because over the past couple of years, homeschooling was so much more difficult without being able to do as many in-person things. You know, I just felt like our whole groove had been thrown off and, and shifted a lot. And we thought, well, we can either shake things up with our homeschool day or we can try this. Um, and so we decided to to send them to school this year and it has been great. So it's been so interesting to, because I call us, um, we were lazy homeschoolers is, is what I what I think. But part of it was just our model for educating our kids was primarily reading, just helping them to become big readers, to be exposed to good books and just read and read and read and do math on the side. And then everything else was icing on the cake. You know, we do nature walks and we do field trips and we cook together and talk about history and things, but the only, there wasn't a lot of structure because we just wanted to talk to our kids and read with them and make sure they were up to scratch with math. And so it was interesting because I didn't know, you know, as someone who'd always just homeschooled, well, how are they going to do in a more traditional classroom? Are they going to be able to, to do this? Are they going to be behind? Or are they going to be bored? Or, you know, and so it was very affirming to see that, yeah, they could just jump right in. Even though we hadn't done things in a very structured way, we had still been able to prepare them in a way to be successful in school. So that I think that's just an encouragement to anyone homeschooling who's feeling insecure (laughs) that it's probably fine. You know, just the, the, what you're offering at home, it's, it's so different than the classroom that, and it can be done well in so many different ways to, to lean into the way that works for your family, you know, what you're good at, the way that, um, what you're passionate about, that if you lean into that, then they're going to be able to transition into something different with that foundation. So it was in some ways just really affirming to see like, oh, I didn't mess them up. 
you know, (laughs) (laughs) which is always the thing that we parents, you know, I mean, feel all the time, second guessing ourselves, because it is a big, huge responsibility. And most of us come with zero experience, like what is it supposed to look like? But I love to, Haley, what you do is you articulated that you and your husband sat together and defined your educational goals. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. isn't that really at the heart of it? Whatever decision we make. Right. And really, we we wanted we wanted to prepare our children to be successful adults someday. But primarily, we wanted to um, them to love to learn. Yes. And so, when you start there, it's just kind of it's a different perspective. And um, it's been interesting. Like one of our children's teachers wrote me an email and just said, "Your daughter just she loves. She's so excited about learning, which just made me so happy that that goal had been achieved." Um so so yeah, I it's been a great transition for us. It wasn't something that we really expected, but it was seemed like what needed to happen for our oldest and then things just kind of fell into place for a different kind of day for our household. And and it's been great. Um and sometimes people have said like, well, do you regret not sending them earlier? And really, I, I don't. Um, it, was, it was wonderful that really the hardest decision was whether we we're going to send our youngest mm-hmm. because I just, I love those years of reading picture books and going to the library and going to the zoo and the park um, before you even feel like you need to do anything structured. But when we thought about just having her at home, she's used to having three playmates all mm-hmm. day that that would be probably a harder transition for her than trying out a classroom. And it has been great. So yeah, I think it's one of those things that you just discern each year. Mm-hmm. You need to take a year off. You could always go back to homeschooling. Yeah. Never cast in stone that this is irreversible, but mm-hmm. also um, what I loved you said about it too, was um, about the community, the culture. So the family itself has a culture, you know, it would have been, as you said, you as the parents communicating and thinking what's best for each individual child at that stage and looking at them within your family. That was beautiful, Haley. So you are going to be, well, two questions. One was, um, when are we going to start to see some children's books and <laughs> from, your, from Spark? And then two, where, where can we find you and learn about you and all those updates? Sure. So personally, I have um, the first two books in a children's book series coming out this fall from Pauline. So they're um, called the Sister Serafina Mysteries. They're about a little order of mouse nuns who live underneath G.K. Chesterton's house in Beaconsfield, and they run a little school and solve local crimes inspired by Father Brown. So um, those are coming out in the fall. And then our first um, books from Spark, from Word on Fire Spark, will be releasing in 2023. So keep an eye out for those. We're very excited. And Did then- the Sister Serafina story, and before, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, that was like one of those writer, like it came to me in a dream kind of thing. And so I just- yeah. It was weird because I don't usually get writing ideas in dreams. That is not my MO, but um, I had a dream about these little mouse nuns who lived underneath J.K. Chesterton's house. So I had no choice but to to write the story. <laughs> it's so delightful. We can't miss that little point. 
So great. So then you're saying, sorry, Haley. Um, you can find me on, on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Haley carrots, H A L E Y carrots, like Anne of Green Gables. Yeah. And then, um, you can, I have a blog that I never write in anymore called carrotsformicklemas.com, but I'm never there anymore. So you can find me on social media and then on the fountains of carrots podcast. Wonderful. Well, we will put all those links below this video. Uh, really, really, I wanted to thank you so much, Haley, for spending time with me. As you said, you probably got this long list of things you have to do before you're moving across <laughs> the country. Uh, I really, really wanted to be able to share with our audience the beauty of literature. Thank you. You did that so much for us. I, I want to bless you for the work you're doing. Keep us posted, please do, on all the new releases, things that you're doing. Absolutely. Any so much. words for our people here, Haley? Anything you want to leave us um, with? I think just to... In, I think that inspired by Jane Austen, just enjoying literature, just seeing that as that, that's, that's a goal that just being able to enjoy it and not think about the vocabulary and, you know, all, all of these little pieces that benefit our kids' education and are great, but just teaching them to enjoy, I think is, is just, that's the goal. Yeah. I see the joy. And as you said, the joy spread to your children and our families will see that too. So thank you for sharing that, Haley. Thanks so much for having me. Great. Well, thank you everybody for watching and please do join the Catholic homeschool community. That's where you'll see me and you'll see this. The podcast will be on all our channels. Share it with your friends. We want to encourage you again to know that you, you are loved by God and God loves your children infinitely more than even you. <laughs> and you've got this. So thanks again and may God bless you abundantly. Thank you so much for watching. If you enjoyed this video, please consider liking it and subscribing to our YouTube channel. You can find us on all your favorite podcast platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Thank you and have a blessed day.